Did you hear the, the story about the man that was marooned on the desert island, or deserted island, depending on how you want to refer to those kinds of things? Did you hear the story about that? He was there for a solid five years all by himself until at last he was rescued, and uh, the, the rescue boat discovered him, and as he's climbing on board, the rescuers were noticing back on the island that there were three straw huts that had been erected. And they asked the man, what were the three huts for? And, and he casual, casually replied, well, I mean, the, the first one was my, my house, and the second one was my church. And perplexed, the rescuers noticed there was still another hut, and they asked him, well, what about the third hut? And the man replied as casually as before, well, that was the church that I used to go to. <laughs> in 2020, the Barna Group released their State of the Church report, which I have referenced a couple of times over the last several years. And, and, and one of the things they noticed in their uh, assessment of the statistics are certain trends. And one of those trends is declining church loyalty, or as some refer to it, church hopping. And they've noticed that's becoming an increasingly common feature of church going, especially among the younger generation. According to Barna, 70% of the boomers confirm church membership as something in their lives, so a good uh, three quarters of you out there. But for those who are counted among the millennial or the Gen X generations, we're looking at something like 48 to 51% respectively. So it's just not something that is, is valued as much among younger Christians. Younger generations of churchgoers are also more likely to refer to membership on their response sheet as non-applicable which indicates that the churches they come from don't even include membership or that concept as part of their nomenclature. It's just not something that they think about or value or, or do. David Kinneman, the CEO of Barna, says this, Americans aren't joining much of anything these days, and church membership is not as compelling as it once was. In a world of untethered commitments and free-for-all content, the positive correlations of church membership should not be overlooked. And by positive correlations, what does he mean? Well, their own statistics indicate that members, people who are who, who, churchgoers who are members of a distinct body of believers report a number of positive uh, things that correlate to that. Number one is they are 20% more likely to, than non-church members to say that they connect with God personally or experience his presence in a worship service. Isn't that interesting? that the more committed people are to the body that they belong to, the more aware and sensitive they are to the presence of God. They're 20% more likely to be challenged to change something in their lives during worship services, perhaps indicating that there's a deeper commitment not just to, to one another, but a commitment to what the Lord is saying and wanting to do in their lives. They're 20% more likely to attend worship services and read their Bible out of enjoyment. That's interesting. And they report feeling more inspired and encouraged by their church services. Kinneman concludes, the form of membership, the way membership is understood and exercised in America may be undergoing change, but the function of generating a mutually committed group of people is still highly relevant to today's Americans. Today, of course, in case you haven't figured it out yet or seen it on the screen or read it in your bulletin, today is Membership Sunday. And the purpose of the message that I'm going to preach, that I've already kind of started here, is not necessarily to, to push membership per se, and it's also not meant to be critical of, of, of people who have changed churches at some point in their life. I think every one of us here, with the exception of just a very small handful, have had more than one church in our lives. Instead, my purpose is to try to attempt to better understand the New Testament vision 
of belonging to a local church community. And to do that, I'm going to turn to a story in the Gospels there that um, perhaps all of us know, but, but also perhaps none of us have ever heard preached. At least I have never heard this passage preached, um, so this may be a, a first for a lot of us here. I want you to turn, if you would, in your Bibles to John chapter 19, to uh, a, a, the, the crucifixion scene here of Jesus. I know it's not necessarily the season for talking about the crucifixion, but um, I think you'll see why we're, we're going here this morning. I'll be reading uh, beginning of verse 23 of chapter 19. If you have a guest Bible, we're on page 871. John 19, verse 23 to verse 27. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they divided his clothes among the four of them. They also took his robe, but it was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said, rather than tearing it apart, let's throw dice, let's throw dice for it. This fulfilled the scripture that says, they divided my garments among themselves and threw dice for my clothing. So that is what they did. Standing near the cross were Jesus' mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother standing there beside the disciple he loved, he said to her, Dear woman, here is your son. And he said to this disciple, Here is your mother. And from then on, this disciple took her into his home. Now, in order to get to the meat of the message here, it's going to take a little bit of work at the front end here. So I hope you'll permit me to do a little bit of groundwork here. I hope you can follow along. We're going to be basically uh, identifying and, and uh, looking a little more closely at, for a few minutes, what I see as three contrasts pertaining to John's account of the crucifixion scene here. The first contrast is between the soldiers there in verse 23 and then the women, and of course, by extension, John, the disciple who's referenced there uh, in verse 25. This was the common practice of, of the Romans there in, at the beginning of verse 23. Look at it uh, again, if you would. It says, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they divided his clothes among the four of them. That's what they did. They would, they would strip the victim of crucifixion completely naked, and then they would disperse the clothes amongst themselves. They became their property because, after all, the, the naked person dying on the cross was no longer in need of those items. And John provides this particular detail for us about the, the robe of Jesus remaining untorn to demonstrate something, I believe, powerful from our understanding of the Old Testament. Not only does it fulfill Psalm 22, which, by the way, is the most quoted psalm, in the entire New Testament. And you should go and read Psalm 22 sometime, particularly verses 14, 15, and 16 in there. It's, it's almost like a, a, a crystal clear commentary of Jesus' own experience on the cross. It's fascinating to see this, this messianic prophecy concerning, concerning him. Not only does John mention what happened with the robe to, in fulfillment of Psalm 22, he's also showing how God is keeping his promise to David of a throne that would last forever. Now, you, you might ask me, Pastor Sean, how does this idea of the robe remaining untorn doing that? Well, in the Old Testament, the tearing of robes or the tearing of clothing is often closely associated with the dividing of kingdoms and the, the loss of rule. And so what you have here is, is a king who's dying and yet his robe remains untorn. It's as if God is making this emphatic statement, not only in fulfillment of prophecy, but, but to say, this is the true king of, of a kingdom that will last forever and of 
one single people who comprise it. Note the contrast between the ones crucifying him and the women referenced there in verses 25 and following. And of course, it's here where we, we have to rely a little bit on the testimony of the, the synoptic gospels. That's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They sort of fill in a little bit of the details here for us, which is perfectly fine in our Bible study. We always wanted to, to take the scripture within the context of, of the rest of scripture, not just in a vacuum or in isolation. In the other, in the other gospels, uh, in Matthew chapter 27 and in Mark 15, they describe these women as those who had come from Galilee with Jesus to care for him. You see the contrast, right? You have those who are skewering him alive to a stake, and then you have those who are there to care for him, to support him, to, to be there with him, to provide for him. Luke says in chapter 23 that they were Jesus' friends. These are friends of Jesus, people who are close to his heart. And so in a sense, these two groupings represent, largely in a, in a macro sense, two categories of people in the world. You have the soldiers who represent the, the world and its posture of hostility and animosity towards Jesus, which you and I see every day in the world around us, don't we? Absolutely the world is set in opposition to God. Absolutely the world is, is hostile to, to the name of Jesus and to his people. But then you have in the women the representation of those who love and who follow him and who belong to his kingdom. It's really interesting. To, to think about these things in, in the, the Old Testament context in which they come. All right, that's the first contrast. What's the second one? Well, the second one, a, a second ago, we relied on the synoptic gospels to sort of fill in the gaps. But now I want to, com- to contrast what John says here to what the synoptic gospels say here in, in, as it pertains to the women's proximity to Jesus. All the other gospels point out that the women watch Jesus die from a distance. And you can go and look up the crucifixion passages in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and you can see that language is in all three of them. They're they're presented as far away. But what about John? What does John say here? John does not have them at a distance. No, John has them standing, in verse 25, near the cross. There's a closeness that John is highlighting here. And I'm not suggesting that the, the Gospels are at odds with one another, as if they're somehow mutually exclusive. You know, a skeptic might come to that and say, well, look how they don't, they don't match up. You know, this is proof that the Gospels, you know, disagree and that one of them has to be right or, and, and one of them has to be wrong, or perhaps they're all wrong. I don't see any conflict whatsoever. There's no reason to think that they couldn't have been close at one point and then watch from afar at another point. People have legs and they can walk and they would have been free to come closer or free to withdraw. And I think while the synoptics were, were focused on the, the aspect of the, of the followers' distance, John wants us to focus on the aspect of their closeness. They're standing near. Prompting one commentator to describe them as a company of women so committed to Jesus. They were the last at the cross and the first at the tomb. They have come close. Just a beautiful, vivid, dramatic picture of the Christian life. You can always find the true followers of Jesus near the cross. Now, metaphorically speaking, of course. You can always find true Christians, true followers of Jesus, the ones who are most devoted to him, near the cross. It is at the cross, Isaac Watts once penned, where I first saw the light and the burden of my heart rolled away. And who could, fit, who could, who could forget Fanny Crosby's famous hymn where she, she says, In the cross be my glory ever. The cross, you and I understand, is the intersection 
between heaven and earth. It is the place where judgment and mercy coincide and are held together in perfect balance. It is the place where holiness and love, righteousness and peace, as the sons of Korah wrote in the Psalms, kiss. It happens at the cross. And the Christian never moves away from it. The Christian never is sort of done with the cross. Well, I've had my time with the cross. I'm done with the cross. I've moved on to, to bigger and better things. It never is true of those who follow Jesus. So that's the second contrast between John and the synoptics in terms of the, the proximity of the disciples. But the last here is a contrast within John's own gospel between um, what he has to say about Mary in, in, in chapter 19 and then his previous interaction with Mary back in chapter 2. And, and you good students of the gospel of John know that these are the only two places in the entire gospel where Mary's even mentioned. Mary the mother of Jesus, that is. And, and it's interesting how John presents these two interactions. Perhaps you remember back on January 16th when I preached back from John chapter 2, the miracle at Cana, when we were going through the, the different sign passages in the gospel of John, you might remember that in that passage back in chapter 2, Mary has come to Jesus on the basis of her relationship to him as his mother. And you mothers in here know exactly what I'm talking about, and you children do as well. She's come to her son, the one who is responsible for caring for her and providing for her needs. She knows what he is like. She knows he can be counted upon, and she needs him in a time of crisis. There is no more wine, and there's great shame about to be brought upon the family that is being married. And Jesus, we need you to do something about it. But of course, in that interaction, we see that Jesus has bigger things in mind than she ever could have imagined. You know, she's focused on, on the temporary problems. Jesus, however, his gaze is set on the eternal. He's just looking at a different place than she is. She's thinking about wine. He's thinking about the cross. And Jesus wants her in that passage to see that she could no longer come to him on the basis of her motherhood. But she has now, like every other human being since then, she has to come to him on the basis of him as Messiah and Lord. And John takes the earthly ministry of Jesus from his first miracle at Cana to now his dying moment on the cross, and he bookends it with these encounters with his mother. Yes, she's there at the cross as his mother. I mean, what mother you know, wouldn't be there for their, their son, their daughter, in their time of greatest need? You know, there's, as I look throughout the, the crowd here, there's a handful of teenagers. You know, I remember when I was a teenager, and my own mother is by here, by the way. Sorry, Mom, I just pointed you out there, everybody. Don't look that way over there and see my mom. Um, I remember being a teenager. It wasn't that long ago. It may seem like forever ago to you teens when you're a 41, almost 42-year-old say, I remember being a teenager. But it feels, it feels like almost like yesterday. And I remember in those days, I was convinced that I knew everything. Now, now that I'm 40, almost 42, I know for sure I know everything. But 16-year-old Sean did not know everything. And um, like a typical teenager, I would roll my eyes at, you know, behind my mom's back. I know it's a shock to hear these things. I thought that mom didn't know what she was talking about. You know, I was wiser and smarter and, you know, whatever. And, and just let me tell you, I wasn't. And you teens, you're not. And, and despite whatever, like, hardships you might have in your relationship with your parents, I can promise you this. In your time of need, you will always be able to count on your mom. She will always be there for you. And so there's no doubt on my mind. In her son's crisis moment, 
that Mary is absolutely there. Yes, as his mother. She's never not his mother. Of course she's there. Of course she cares about his life, and she's there by his side. But it, the context that John is, is painting for us and understanding what's going on here between his contrast with the soldiers and, and, and what he's saying about not just Mary, but this band of women compared to what the synoptic gospels say. And, and in contrast to this, this first encounter with Mary back in chapter 2, I think John is saying more deeply, Mary is not just there as his mother. She is presented there as one among those who, in contrast to the, the world who's, who's represented by those crucifying him, and in contrast to those who, who are superficially following Jesus, the ones who are nowhere to be found in Jesus' dying moment, in contrast to all of them, she is a true disciple. She's not just his mother. She is counted among those who have drawn near to him at his cross. Beautiful picture of what it means to follow Jesus. And so this interaction that's about to occur between Jesus and Mary and Jesus and John is not just an interaction between mother and son, but between disciple and Lord, which is the, the key, in my mind, to unlocking everything that's about to take place and understanding its relevance to you and to me this morning. That's our groundwork. That's, our, that's the hard work that I wanted to, to, to lay down before we look again. Look again at verses 26 and 27, that, what happens there. When Jesus saw his mother standing there beside the disciple he loved, he said to her, Dear woman, here is your son. And he said to this disciple, which, by the way, is John, the gospel writer. He's, he's, he calls himself the disciple Jesus loved in his gospel. He says, here is your mother. And from then on, this disciple took her into his home. Now, most commentaries point to this as Jesus providing for Mary's earthly needs out of his filial devotion, his devotion as her son. And that's not wrong. We can't dismiss the grave situation that Mary was facing with no husband because we presume that, that Joseph is out of the equation even from back in chapter 2. Joseph is, is not present. He's never mentioned. And we can assume that, that Jesus is the one responsible for her. And with Joseph out of the picture and Jesus about to be out of the picture, Mary was absolutely facing some serious situations as a, as a first century Jewish woman. But again, as I've been trying to say in, in laying down this groundwork, this context, well, the interaction, I think, points to something deeper. Note that Jesus doesn't leave her in the care of his other natural brothers. Do you notice that? I mean, you would think they would be the logical ones that would take, take on the, the responsibility and the obligation of caring for their mother. But no, we know from back in chapter 7, verse 5, that they are unbelievers. They, they're, they're hostile to Jesus. They're, they're kind of like the soldiers. They're lumped, up, lumped in with that category. It's not until sometime after Pentecost that we learn that Jesus' brothers have come to believe. Instead, he leaves her in the care of John. And I think, in so doing, we catch just a glimpse of the radical nature of the provision of Jesus, not just for his mother, but for those who truly draw near to him. Who is my family, Jesus asks in Matthew chapter 12. Who is my family? Is it those that, that, are, that I'm connected to by birth? We, we share the same blood. That's my no, Jesus says something quite different in Matthew chapter 12. He says, anyone who does the will of my Father in heaven, that is my brother. That is my sister. That is my mother. And it's not that Jesus is, is diminishing the value and the role of the human family. Not at all. 
But instead, what he, he's pointing to the fact that there are deeper ties to be found in Christ that supersede and even transcend those of flesh and blood. There's something deeper that, that binds the believers in Christ together than, than, what, the, than even what sons and fathers and mothers and daughters and brothers and sisters experience. There's something going on here that's deep and transcendent. This is not a legal scene where the, the dutiful, dutiful son you know, was carrying out his filial responsibilities. No, this is a picture of the church. The place where the Lord himself binds together the faithful. And in this account, you and I get to witness in real time the fulfillment of Jesus' own promise from back in Matthew 19, 29, where he says this, everyone who has given up houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or property for my sake. He's talking about those who have to leave their family in order to follow Jesus. Those who have to give up their treasures. Those who have to sacrifice every worldly thing, if that's what it takes, to, to put their hands to the plow and, and follow the Lord. He's saying every single person who does that for me in this life will receive a hundred times as much in return and will inherit eternal life. It's a promise. And there's some of you who are living out that promise right now. In your devotion to Jesus, you've had to, to sever ties, not, not because you wanted to, but because it was necessary. Or perhaps your commitment to follow Jesus led others to sever ties with you. Or you've sold a business, or a home, or you've moved. You've done whatever it takes to follow him. Listen, my own family is living out the, this promise as you, as you see us before you. It was hard for us to, to come to North Carolina. I'm, a, I'm an Ohioan. I'm a Buckeye. I don't belong here. My wife, she's a Mississippian. She really doesn't belong here. And when we moved here, it was the first time that both of us had been away from both of our families. So we moved to, to what seems like the middle of nowhere to be with a bunch of people we didn't know, you know, hundreds of miles from all of our family who were both very close to. It was a major sacrifice. But, oh, look what we've gotten in return. Listen, I wouldn't trade it for the world. Because following Jesus, yes, it's hard, and you have to say no to some things. If that's what he calls you to say no to. But, oh, he provides in beautiful ways. And we get to see right here, as, as, as Mary is saying goodbye to her son, Jesus is saying, oh, you're following me, and as you follow me, I will provide even more for your life. They have given up everything to be with him. And in return, they get so much more. And as Jesus looks down at perhaps the two closest people in his life, at the most significant moment in his earthly ministry, he says to them, I give you to each other. Oh, that's beautiful. I give you to each other. And I believe that it is this idea of givenness that is the truest expression of Jesus' vision for his church. It underlies all the pastoral exhortations regarding relationships within the church in the New Testament. Romans 12.10, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Be committed. Be loyal. Be invested. Be given over to each other. 
Not out of duty, not obligation, not in some legal sense. You do it out of love. I belong to you, and you belong to me. We are in this together. We over me. Ephesians 2.19, for you are members of God's what? God's family. Father, son, brother, and sister. Which, by the way, this is what causes Paul to fall to his knees and pray in, his, in uh, chapter 3, verse 1. Last week, remember, we, we, we were in chapter 3, and I, and I made the point that he begins a thought in verse 1, and then he kind of breaks off on a tangent, and we spent last week in the tangent. But when he resumes his thought later in verse 14, he says, when I think of this, he said in verse 1, verse 14, when I think, what's he thinking of? He's thinking of 219, that we are members of God's family. When I think of this, that we are members together of God's household, that we belong to him, we belong to one another, we are one family under one God, one Father, one kingdom, one people, I fall to my knees and give him thanks and praise. I'm in awe at this reality. Every human family points to that greater family. That's the purpose of the human family. To reveal to us the nature of God and the nature of what he's producing in the world. Children, his sons and daughters. He says, when I think of this, I fall to my knees and I, in wonder and in prayer. And then he starts working out the implications of it in chapter 4. That's how all of the book of Ephesians ties together. This plan that began in the the mind of God back in chapter 1 that is revealed in Christ, this mystery made known, that God is making one people, his family, and here are the implications of that, chapter chapter 4 through 6. And what does he say in chapter 4? Well, he starts giving these exhortations. Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other. Making allowance for each other's faults because of why? Because of your love. That foundation, that is the the root and the cause and the basis of all these exhortations, these commands of things we should do. Why do we do these things? Because of who you are. Because you're his family, because you're brothers and sisters and you're united to each other and you have union with one another and you're given to one another and you belong to one another. Because of these things, do this. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. And then he goes on and on with all the rest of the letter and all the rest of the epistles. They all say the same things. And the point is not just to give us a set of rules. Oh, we're taking all these people from different places that have nothing to do with each other. How are they ever going to get along? (laughs) How are they ever going to coexist in the same space? Look, the the point of of these exhortations is not just to give rules to enable these gathered people to to you know, peacefully coexist. No, these rules form the very outworking of the life of a redeemed and unified community. It's family life. It's how family gets along. It's how family coexists. It's how family shares life rightly. Knit and joined together in love. The church, the very locus of God's presence and activity on earth. And you and I, as good, proper, evangelical believers tend to miss the depths of our union to one another because we're focused so much, at least we should be focused, on our personal relationship with Jesus. Now, if you're not focused on either, then I want you to reassess your life today. If you don't 
claim a personal relationship with Jesus, if you can't articulate a personal relationship with Jesus or affirm it, then, I, then I have, you have a hard time affirming how you are a Christian. You're not a Christian because you showed up this morning and sat under this roof and sang some songs. You're a Christian because you have put your faith in Christ and have been born again from above and received his spirit. That is what makes you a Christian. In every single individual. Barbary. Just a second ago, uh, Ephesians chapter 4. Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> Any other questions? <laughs> it's okay, Barbary. I'm happy. If, if we, yeah, well, well, we'll connect afterwards, and we'll make sure you have everything sorted out. No, I do. There you go. Good. Thank you. Barbary's joining this morning, by the way. We're looking forward to having her part of our, our congregation. Yeah. Hey, you can clap for that. That's great. You can clap for her again later, too. <laughs> All right, so what was, what was I saying? We tend to miss these things because we're so focused on our personal relationship with Jesus, right? I, I, I have, you know, I believe in these things. I, I read my Bible. I go to church. I go to Sunday school. I do Bible study. I do all these things because this is my, you know, walking with God. And those are all great things. And absolutely, you have a personal relationship with Jesus. But here's the thing about personal relationship with Jesus. There is no absolute individualistic relation to Christ apart from his church. I'm going I'm I'm to say that again. There is no absolute individualistic relationship to Christ apart from his church. And there are Christians out there, friends, or people who call themselves Christians that live that out. They think that all they need is their faith in God. And that's it. And I want to say, well, I'm having a hard time reconciling that with the scriptures. You don't just relate to you and Jesus apart from his body. Yes, each individual has to be born again, but we're born into what? We're born into a family. A people who are called and bound together in him. Jesus didn't show up in, on earth and, and you know, write down a, a set of formal teachings and at the bottom signed it, Jesus, and then handed it to people. No, Jesus came, and what did he build? He built a community of people. The church was the church before the scriptures were in their hands. The church precedes the scriptures chronologically. There was a believing, worshiping community of sacrament and faith before any, any epistle was, was written. Before it was consolidated and combined into the canon of 66 books that you and I cherish and build our lives upon today. Jesus left behind a community of people who have known him and met him and believed in him and followed him personally. And to belong to him is to belong to his body. A body that we, we just sang a moment ago, enlivened by his spirit. Irenaeus, the second century church father, who, by the way, was the spiritual grandson of John the gospel writer. Because John's preaching and ministry produced Polycarp, and Polycarp's preaching and ministry produced Irenaeus. And Irenaeus, in the second century, spent his life fighting heresy within the church. It didn't take long for wrong beliefs to creep into the believing community. And it was people like Irenaeus and, 
in Augustine, in Athanasius, in the Cappadocian Fathers, in Aquinas, and others all throughout church history that has kept the church orthodox, that has kept us centered on the truth revealed in God's word and entrusted to the church. And Irenaeus says this, he says, they have no share in this spirit, that is the Holy Spirit, who do not join in the activity of the church. If you are not invested in the life of a local church, you have no share in his spirit. That's a very strong statement, but one I think fits right in line with, with what the New Testament is trying to tell us. For where the church is, there is the spirit of God. And where the spirit of God is, there is the church and every kind of grace. You see, corporate church life, friends, is not an addendum to life in Christ. It's not something we just add to the end like, you know, bonus material. You know, all the things that you and I experience and share together at this church, those things are not collateral blessings to life in Christ. We don't come to church and attend functions and join life groups and all those other things as something we add to our faith. No, it is right here where our faith in Christ takes shape and is best expressed. It happens here. You don't have to join a church to be saved. There's only one condition to be saved. It is by grace through faith that you are saved, absolutely. But if you are saved, you are part of the body. And the expression of that, by necessity, occurs within a localized gathering of people. People with deep, mutual, interdependent ties of love and commitment. Where where life is transferred from person to person to person. And so, if all these things are true, my question for you this morning is, how given are you to this church or whatever church you call your home church? There may be guests here today or people tuning in online that aren't here, and that's fine. But the question remains, how given are you to them? Here in a few moments, I'm going to invite a handful of people. They're going to come, and they're going to line up on this blue line right here, and they're going to face you just like many of you once did. And they're going to recite some vows Ooh, it's kind of scary, isn't it, when you start talking about that. They're going to recite some vows before us and before God Almighty to be loyal to the evangelical Methodist church. Sounds a lot like Romans 12.10, doesn't it? To uphold it by their prayers and their presence and their gifts and their service. And all of them went through membership class a number of weeks ago, and they understand that this decision this morning is not some commitment to come join a social club. If you want to join a social club, there's any number of them around that you can go join, and they're all fine. Help yourself. Go join a social club. That's not what they're doing here this morning. They understand that they're coming to enter into and commit themselves to a family. Yes, as Christians, they belong to the family of God, the church universal. Everyone who believes in Christ belongs to the church universal. Absolutely. But that belonging doesn't just happen in the abstract. No, it happens with real relationships with other people right here in this place. And their act of membership formalizes their commitment to belong to you and you to them. But formalization aside, my question remains, do belonging and givenness, do those things describe your commitment to one another at the level of the heart? As you think about who you are in relation to the person next to you, 
the row behind or in front, or all the way across the worship center, or those who are a part of this church but who for whatever reason aren't here this morning, at the level of the heart, do belonging and givenness describe your commitment to them? And if so, what does that look like? And as I prayed about this sermon, and I prayed about this service, I was asking the Holy Spirit to fill in the blanks, as only he can do, to take these ideas and not only help us to apply them, but, but to say, where do I apply this in my life? What are the implications of this for my life? What does it look like to be given over and belonging and given this to another? How is that expressed? How is that lived out? Not just in my mind, but with my time and my treasures and my talents. What does is, what is koinonia look like in real day-to-day life? Well, that's why we have life, things like life groups, isn't it? Because in a life group where you, you really enter more deeply into the life of another. And we're, you're going to be seeing a renewed emphasis on life groups this, this fall that I'm really really excited about. Excited about. It's, why we, it's why we worship together on Sundays. It's why we serve together. It's why we go on mission trips together. It's why we have picnics and ministry fairs and all the things. It's because we're expressing and we're living out this reality in our lives. But let me say this, if belonging and givenness don't describe your commitment to one another at the level of the heart, then ask yourself if your vision for church or for the Christian life as a whole is even in the same galaxy as Jesus's. Are you anywhere near where Jesus is as he's thinking and talking about these things? Jesus who, with his dying breath, makes provision for those who have drawn near, provision that takes the shape in the form of persons given to one another in love. That's the church. That's life in Christ. That's what all of this is about. And that's what is about to take place here in just a moment after I pray. Lord, thank you for the challenge this morning to reassess and reevaluate our own minds and hearts and our perspectives and attitudes. Lord, forgive us for how we've so individualized our, our Christian experience. How we've focused so much on just us and you, me and Jesus. It's all about me and Jesus. And it is about us and you, but it's me and you, but it's also about us and you and us and each other. Lord, help us to see these things. It's not just a vertical reality, but a vertical and horizontal. And that vertical reality is lived out and enfleshed and experienced and expressed in a localized gathering of the faithful. Lord, may we cherish every second we have together. May we, may we take it as seriously as you do. May we be as committed and devoted as, as the New Testament calls us to be to one another. And Lord, may this church continue to be a beautiful family, a Christ-centered community of holy love that draws people into worship of the triune God and disciples them to minister to their world. Lord, may that be true today and every day to come, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.